you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Susan Rice. Oh, yeah, this is the latest. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's important, I think, that you all understand because you're going to hear this. You hear this all over cable news, and you hear it from the White House press secretary, uh, and hear from uh, and all the right-wing blogs and the Drudge Report yesterday. Everybody's making this. Susan Rice thing, they say, proves that what President Trump said on March 4th is correct, that the the President Obama had ordered a wiretap of Trump Tower. No, it does not. They are completely different issues, and they are, um, it's just like apples and oranges. And first of all, this is not the first distraction, of course, as we remember. Uh, first, the White House said, we ought to be talking about the leakers. Don't talk about the Russian connection. Talk about the leakers, right? Um, okay, they tried that. Then they said, no, well, Hillary, Hillary, remember she made this deal that 20% of the uranium in the United States went to Russia. Why aren't we talking about that? was another distraction. Two days ago, Donald Trump put out a, a, a tweet saying, we should be talking and looking into Tony Podesta. That's John Podesta's brother, who is a lobbyist, and he was arguing that some of his clients they should be investigating as well. They keep throwing this stuff out there, and the latest is they throw the stuff out there that Susan Rice, as National Security Advisor, unmasked certain Trump people who were caught in telephone conversations with Russian agents, foreign agents working for uh, Russia. Uh, this this is the substance of the mysterious documents that Devin Nunes, House Intelligence Chairman, ran down to the White House to get, ran back to the Congress and said, I just discovered these documents that are so sensitive I have to run back to the White House and tell Donald Trump about them. But he didn't tell everybody he got them from the White House in the first place. That's what they are. And what, is, what does all this amount to? You know what it amounts to? Susan Rice, number one, she was National Security Advisor. She was doing her job. Her job is to protect our national security, protect the people of the United States. As a National Security Advisor, if you see from all these intelligence reports that suddenly there are all these people that keep popping up talking to Russian intelligence officers, Russian foreign agents. You would not be doing your job if you didn't ask, who are these people? Right. And what are they talking about? Which she did. It, was, it happens, by the way, all the time. It is perfectly legal. It is an important part of her job. And to get that information, meaning unmasking, because their names are blocked by, by American law, unless there's a national security reason for finding out who they are. And when she does makes that request, the, there's a whole process. The intelligence agencies have to ask her, why do you want to know this? And then they have to approve her getting the name of that person before she can get it. 
She did that, and she leaked it to absolutely nobody. So this whole thing is a ruse. Adam Schiff, again, the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, has said once again, this is Donald Trump's way of saying, look over there, look over there, but don't look at me. And the problem with this is you open the door for all of these enablers, right? Because it's not just about Trump. It's about the enablers. Yeah. And so, you know, like I looked up at the TV <laughs> while you were talking and said, who ordered Susan Rice to do this? Does it oh, go yeah. all the way oh, to yeah. Obama? Yeah. Right. Right. So now you've got all of these nuts who are wondering, did Obama instruct Susan Rice to do this, which is insane. No. Yesterday morning, but they're, so, but they're trying to cover for for Trump's just rants. So uh, somebody told me a little, little debate I was on in yesterday it said that made the point. Uh, Susan Rice is a was a political operative and uh, appointee, and I said no 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 she she's, she was a national security advisor, and he said oh no 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 she was appointed by President Obama, and I said well wait wait can I just point out the defense she serves at the pleasure of President Obama. I said wait. The defense secretary serves at the pleasure of the president. The secretary of state serves at the the FBI director. I mean, all of them are appointed by the president and yeah. serve at his pleasure. That doesn't mean they're That's political. How it goes. That doesn't mean they're political operatives. Right. Not at all. Her job was national security. Uh, let's here's uh, Adam Schiff again saying what this is all about. I think there are some that would like us to turn our attention away from the Russia investigation uh, and spend our time focusing on the issue of incidental collection because it's a it's an easy way to say don't look here don't look at the russian investigation yeah don't look here don't look there whatever uh it's exactly what they're doing uh one one person though who thinks susan rice is absolutely guilty and who insists that what susan rice did was wrong and proves that donald trump was right when he said that obama wiretapped trump tower Senator Rand Paul. I believe Susan Rice abused this system and she did it for political purposes. She needs to be brought in and questioned okay, under believe- So Rand Paul, yes, he's gone totally in the tank with Donald Trump on this issue. And it's just a coincidence that he did that yesterday morning, Tuesday morning, just two days after spending Four hours on the golf course with Donald Trump, as Congressman Eric Eric Sawell yesterday made this point with Wolf Blitzer on CNN. He sounds like a guy that spent his Sunday golfing with a subject of this investigation, and he did. <laughs> yeah, so Donald Trump comes out and pumps him up. But again, you got to understand, right, that this, these people, their names were caught up. They weren't... Sp- there was no spying on the Trump Tower. There was no wiretapping of Trump Tower. There was legitimate, ongoing surveillance of foreign agents in this country, which we've always done and which is an important part of our intelligence and should continue. And in those contacts, in that surveillance that's called incidental surveillance, suddenly these certain same names kept popping up because they were always on the phone and having conversations with these Russian agents. And, of course, what I want to know is I want Susan Rice to come up and testify in front of Congress. I want to know what these people were talking about. They weren't talking about the price of cabbage. <laughs> right? Or, yeah. Come on. That's that's the real story. Why were they having why, again, with all these connections? And speaking of connections, of course, 
another one came out yesterday, which the White House says, no, we don't want to talk about that one. And I, Peter, I know you talked about this yesterday. Eric Prince, yeah. who has this big meeting in the Seychelles Island yeah. with this Russian oligarch arranged by the United Arab Emirates so they could develop a back channel to Donald Trump. Uh, that's how Prince, Eric Prince, by the way, who can't even step foot in the United States because he's under indictment. Yeah. Look, yeah. He lives, in, I mean, in Europe somewhere. Like right? For all of the things that we've said about the connection, the ties between Blackwater <laughs> and the Republicans. Yeah. Like, here we are. This is it. Here we are again. Founder of Blackwater. Uh, under criminal charges, so he can't can't land uh, appear on U.S. soil. Betsy DeVos's brother, by the way, talk about a Trump connection, who presents himself as a good friend of Donald Trump's and an emissary of Donald Trump's, and basically saying, you know, let's meet in secret and we'll make a deal, and I will represent you with uh, Donald Trump, right? So, uh, and how do they explain that one away? Well, they just don't don't want to talk about. It. You know how they explain it away? Let's talk about Susan yeah, Rice. Right. Right? Let's talk about uh, a- anything else. Uh, it is uh, this whole, it's a red, another red herring going nowhere. Uh, so don't believe a word. If you talk about fake news, this is indeed fake news. President Trump today, a big news conference in the Rose Garden, if you please, with the president of the king uh, of Jordan on all things foreign policy. That's the new domain of Josh Letterman for Associated Press, formerly at the White House, now at the State Department. Hello, Josh. Hey, Bill. Great to see you. Great to be back. So here's my question. This week we have the president of Egypt, the the king of Jordan, the king of China. Where's Rex Tillerson? Great question. It's the million-dollar question, not only of this week, but uh, of perhaps this whole administration. I mean, he is the Secretary of State, correct? He is, you know, him alongside Secretary Jared. You know, they're kind of battling it out for Jared Kushner, right? Yeah, right. Um, Look, you know, Tillerson's around. He's planning to attend the president's meeting at the White House today with uh, the leader of Jordan. Um, But it's no secret that he has not had the kind of public profile that we expect from secretaries of state of both parties, and he's been pretty open about that. He's uh, talked a few times about, you know, feeling like he doesn't need to be out there all the time, that he doesn't need to be seeking a lot of media attention. Uh, You know, of course, a lot of his critics say, well, that's actually your job, is to be out in the public sphere making the case proactively for U.S. foreign policy, for our values, for our positions on conflicts big and small and not just to wait until you have something ready to roll out, uh, you know, in order to take a stand. Mm -hmm. So um, is it you alluded to this? It seems that the foreign policy is being run more out of the Oval Office. I think that's Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, who's the or the key players. I, yeah, I think Kushner and, and Bannon certainly are playing large roles, and and you know hopefully other some of the other cabinet members like Secretary Mattis at the Pentagon. Uh, now, I, I think we should note that um, the critic the critique that foreign policy is being uh, centralized in the White House is not a new one. It was one yeah, that President right. Obama yeah, faced yeah, quite often, absolutely. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you right. do want your Secretary of State to be empowered as someone that foreign leaders feel like they can turn to to have a, 
an in to talk to the administration. And we hear from diplomats from a lot of different countries that particularly as the State Department remains essentially unstaffed at the top levels other than the secretary, that they don't know who to talk to. They don't know who's pulling the strings. We also uh, uh, heard uh, that in terms of press coverage at the State Department, uh, a change of policy. The uh, secretary went on his first uh, major trip to Asia. Uh, you didn't go with him. Uh, in fact, what? One reporter went with him, right? Did not take the press corps with him. That's right. Um, and, you know, one of the other uh, issues was that that one reporter went basically on their own as opposed to um, uh, pooling all of the information, basically sharing mm. updates about the secretary's right. travels and meetings with a broader pool of reporters in order to be able to accommodate other people yeah, writing right. about the trip. Um, the, the This um, State Department has, has signaled under Tillerson that they don't feel that it's necessary to have a whole press corps with them. They think that they are saving money by taking a smaller aircraft, even though, of course, media pay for our own seats yeah, when yeah. we travel. Um, the new, um, uh, what we're expecting going forward at a minimum is they're going to start providing us with two seats per trip for the press. Uh, I'll have one of those seats when we leave on uh, Sunday for a trip to Moscow and uh, Italy. And um, what about daily press briefings at the State Department? Are they happening? Daily what? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Can you explain, have you heard these things? Explain that concept. Will they talk to the press, oh. talk to the media? And answering questions. Oh, or, I see. Uh, those, okay. have, uh, those have been cut off um, until, and, uh, they, until the State Department appoints a new spokesperson who is able to conduct those briefings. Currently, they don't have one. Uh, and the acting uh, spokesperson, who was a career diplomat, has moved on to a new job and uh, is no longer there. So they are faceless at the moment. Um, the State Department's been doing what they call background calls, so conference calls with reporters where uh, officials will answer questions but can't be quoted by name. Um, of course, you know President Trump has uh, said that the media should not be allowed to use anonymous sources, even as his administration is requiring right. yeah. the press to do just that. You know, one of the things that people don't really think about is – Yes, the press briefings are great. You could talk to the media. You could give them sort of the the company line, if you will. But it's also really, really important in the sense that, like, other nations are watching those, right? Like, their counterparts in mm. countries all around the world are watching those to see where we stand on X, Y, or right. Z. That's a great point. And when we don't have those... Right. It's all What's the message? It's I mean, it's nice to have these sort of calls and, and off the record things or on the record things with reporters here in America. But like, what are we telling other countries? Exactly. What are we telling other nations when yeah. we just shut it down? Um, so, Jamie, if we can, uh, Sean Spicer was asked yesterday uh, about this horrible, horrific situation in Syria where yet again, uh, it appears that this, I mean, I'm, I would say I'm totally convinced that the Syrian government used chemical weapons against its own people uh, yet again. Uh, what, what is the White House reaction here, Sean Spicer? These heinous actions by the Bashar al-Assad regime are a consequence of the past administration's weakness and irresolution. There's the answer. Blame Obama. That's right. <laughs> it was a, a, a really shocking statement no. from the president no, that... Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bill, uh, officials at both the White House and the State Department um, tell us that uh, that was actually not the statement that the uh, this National Security Council had drafted, that they, along with the State Department, had put together 
the kind of, you know, statement that you would have expected, you know, we call on, you know, the Syrians to do whatever. And this is and that actually at the last minute that was overruled by a statement crafted in the Oval Office by President Trump, who said, no, this is what we're going to say about it. And then it was quickly disseminated um, over the objections of a lot of people in other parts of the government. Whoa, whoa. Uh, The New New York Times headline this morning is Trump speaks out in muted tones. Um, uh, Yeah, certainly muted tones. But the idea of blaming Obama, I I read a column David Korn wrote for uh, um, for Mother Jones where he cited numerous tweets from Donald Trump when President Obama was in the White House dealing with Syria, saying, what are we doing in Syria? we got to stay out of Syria. we got to get out of Syria. We should be doing nothing in Syria. Right. You know, just, uh, and, and now, right, it just doesn't That's make right. Sense. In 2013, President Trump was actively encouraging Obama not to launch strikes against the Assad regime, even after they crossed Obama's so-called red line. Right. Uh, and now yeah. he's saying that Obama's failure to do to so, do so is, has created the conditions that led Assad to. And haven't they also um, moved away from the demand for Assad to step down or get out? They have. They're now saying that that's up to the Syrian people, but that they expect that the Syrian people, once given that choice, won't want uh, Assad to be in power. But we should note that that was actually an evolution of a position that started at the end of the Obama administration. Obama, after calling for, you know, saying Assad's days were numbered by the end, was, you know, saying we need to have a political transition and what role, if any, Assad will play in that, they were pretty vague about. Right. You and I were both there in the briefing rooms when under, you know, from Robert Gibbs and Jay Carney and Josh Ernest, it was always Assad has to go. That's the first thing has to happen. And then suddenly they stopped saying that. Uh, You know, it just... It wasn't that they necessarily – they didn't make a big public announcement. We've changed our mind. Right. But I think they started accepting the reality that the rebel forces were not going to throw them out and we'd better deal with a different plan. And I think we also have to accept the reality that the Obama administration did not do a great job with Syria. That's right. I think that yeah. – like, Yeah. And, and they, they admit it. And they admit it. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. do admit yeah. it. And so now here we are again. I'm not. I'm not sure what a better job with Syria looks like to Donald Trump, but I don't think I like the options that are on the table. Fifth right. year of a civil war, um, and and there is also looming out there this question of uh, North Korea, which wanted to make sure that uh, people know we're there, so we shoot off another missile just before President Xi shows up at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and your secretary, uh, Secretary of State, went to uh, Asia and basically said. Bombs almost, it sounded like, you know, we're ready for a military option if necessary. Yeah. I mean, the Trump administration has been all over the map on North Korea, frankly. I mean, they've talked about, you know, we're going to put an end to this. This is not going to stand, you know, and then they've talked about, you know, well, what we're really going to do is try to press China to use their influence, which was precisely the Obama administration uh, position. Uh, And now in response to the latest provocation from North Korea last night, the response from the administration was a very brief statement from Secretary Tillerson saying, we've talked enough about North Korea. We're not going to say anything more about it. Here's the the statement from Rex Tillerson after North Korea. Quote, North Korea launched yet another intermediate range ballistic missile. The United States has spoken enough about North Korea. We have no further comment. End quote. Which I mean... you know, there's there's a level of cleverness there. It's basically what a parent says when their child is throwing a temper tantrum. Like, you can, you know, cry as much as you want, but let me know when you're ready to talk like a big boy, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I understand also that 
no president ever says this option is off the table, right? Right. They always I, Democrats or Republicans, they always say all options are on the table. Sure. You just kind of have to say. But but, with, but little... as far as a military option, there there really isn't one in North Korea because of the way they've structured their nuclear program with spots all over the country, a lot of them underground or otherwise concealed. It's very difficult to imagine uh, being able to uh, eliminate their nuclear weapons program militarily in one fell swoop. Right. Which means that South Korea is a parking lot. You said it, not me. <laughs> well, that, that would be their first reaction, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, our our allies in South Korea and Japan would, would, would probably not fare t- terribly well into that scenario. Yeah. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Michelle Joando is the Vice President for Legal Progress at the Center for American Progress uh, and is kind enough to come in and join us in studio today. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you, Michelle. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So the last we checked, do we know yet, is... uh, Senator Merkley's still there. He's still there. Going strong. Yeah, he's going been strong. going strong. I love it. I love, love it. That. He was, what, um, this was 12 hours now? It's been, yep. I don't know. We're up to 13, 14 hours. Um, started around 7 <laughs> uh, last night. Um, and you know, God bless him. Senator from Oregon stated a while ago <laughs> on Twitter that he would do everything he could to prevent Neil Gorsuch from being confirmed to the Supreme Court. And, you know, it's nice to see when leaders stand up for what they believe in and take yep. to the floor yep. and actually do a filibuster and right. not pretend filibuster the way we have now. No, you no, know, no. Exactly. I mean, that's why on the filibuster. I'm all for it as long as they actually have to filibuster, right? right? They have to talk. <laughs> they right? have to do something. Now, this idea that well, we, you know, we just we announce a filibuster, but then they <laughs> still go home and go to bed. Uh-uh. Exactly. No, no. The thing that I think is so interesting about this is is Jeff Merkley's in the second term, I think. Mm-hmm. So he's he's been here for a little while. Mm-hmm. And I never really looked at Jeff Merkley as some hardcore in-your-face Democrat, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think. In the era of Trump, he's someone who's just like, this is not normal. Right. This is right. not how this should be. Right. There's something very, very, very wrong. And he's laying it all on the line Completely. to make that point. Completely. I, think I he, love that. You know, he's not a rabble rouser. He's sort no. of mm-hmm. silent but deadly. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. You know, we've mm-hmm. had him in here several times. He's very strong, very mm-hmm. core principles, beliefs. Uh, and he fights for them, as yeah. we're seeing right now. I, I mean, and I think what's important to kind of note about what Senator Merkley is doing is he's raised three main objections to Gorsuch. One, um, he's stated, listen, while the FBI is currently investigating President Trump, we should not be confirming any of this guy's Supreme Court nominations. The second thing that he's really highlighted is the fact that Gorsuch has a troubling record, substantively, of equating corporations as people. Um, And whenever you get into a a space where we're looking at 
providing the same level of strict scrutiny for campaign finance decisions as we do on issues of race and religion, then you're going down a real bad slippery slope to the evisceration of any campaign finance uh, standards that we currently have in place. And so Senator Merkley is saying, listen, corporations are not people. We need more protections around money in politics. We need greater disclosure. And we know if Gorsuch is on the bench, all of that goes away. Mm -hmm. There's a third point you were going to make. Oh, yeah. And then finally, I think what what he has recognized is that moving the court in a direction as more conservative um, is not in line with where most Americans are. You know, we get into these these uh, fights about conservative and and um, progressive. But what Senator Merkley has highlighted is that the 44 now we're up to 44 uh, senators who are saying that no, uh, Gorsuch will not have their support, um, represent more than half of the country. So mm-hmm. their values are not being represented with this person on the bench, and they deserve a voice. Right. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren made uh, the first point that mm-hmm. you, um, you mentioned about the, the ongoing investigation, which I thought was a very powerful one. She made this yesterday. I think it is crazy that we are considering confirming a lifetime Trump nominee to the Supreme Court at a moment when the president's campaign is under the cloud of an active, ongoing FBI counterintelligence investigation that could result in indictments and appeals that will go all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, we don't know where this thing is going, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that is the point. Um, you know, when you think about the fact that in history we haven't had a, a Supreme Court nomination, um, an appointee on the Supreme Court is a lifetime appointment. It is the last stop, the most complex, difficult questions facing our nation. Think about. Gore v. Bush. <laughs> Think about Brown v. Board. Think about Marbury v. Madison. I mean, these are are, are quintessential, um, huge debates that end up before the Supreme Court. And this president, who we know has a troubling record of respecting judges and what the judiciary does, we can expect that many of these questions will be before the Supreme Court. Do we want to appoint someone under the shroud of this, whether or not he should actually be president or what Mm -hmm. level of potential collusion between Russian influences? We really want to put that guy's Supreme Court nominee on the bench? I think not. Well, a little earlier to uh, this morning, um, Senator Merkley made a point on the floor uh, that uh, everybody says, well, we shouldn't make a big deal about this because he's just replacing Scalia, as if we should just say, oh, that's fine. <laughs> but he makes a point. No, this guy's actually, in some cases, worse than Scalia. Here's Senator Merkley. Gorsuch has advocated far-right conservative positions, not we the people positions, we the powerful over the people positions, positions even Scalia has opposed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, particularly like on Citizens United. And, and exactly. The, and, the, the, and the Hobby Lobby case, many of his cases, corporations, big corporations, big business versus mm-hmm. 
American workers. That's American, right. Yeah. I think, you know, the one of the other areas um, where we find Gorsuch to the right, actually, of Scalia, and the New York Times considers him potentially the second. Is that a shudder? Just know, call right? my spine. chill up my spine. Exactly. He's the right of Scalia. All of these. I know. Yes. <laughs> Is that yeah. possible? Um, you know, considers him this would potentially be the second most conservative. And the Washington Post, in an analysis of his opinions, would consider him actually more conservative than Justice Clarence. The Senate is in session. They've been in session all night with Senator Jeff Merkley now on the floor. He's been there for, looks like, 13, going on 14 hours uh, on the nomination, opposing the nomination of Neil Gorsuch. Scott Wong is not on the floor, though. He's here, (laughs) senior staff writer for The Hill covering Congress. Hey, Scott, it's good to see you. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me back. So um, the Democrats were serious when they said they're going to have a filibuster, huh? It it looks like it. But but a real filibuster, too. Right, right. And and it looks like uh, we all know where this looks like it's heading. It's it's heading towards uh, a Democratic filibuster. Uh, Democrats have the requisite number of votes to try to block Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Gorsuch and Republicans say they're going to make good on their on their threat, and they're going to uh, to to force a vote with uh, a, a simple majority, and try to push him through the chamber. One thing that uh, I've heard people say that, um, and I, I have mixed feelings about um, about if they do that, what impact it would have. You know, there's there's 51. You only need 51 votes for cabinet members now and all other judges. Right. So uh, I'm not as worried, frankly, about the, uh, I'm opposed to Gorsuch, but not as worried about um, getting rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court justices as some people are, other others are. But I keep hearing people say, and once you do that, you do it forever. That's not true, is it? You can change, if you change the rules, they could be changed yeah. back. You could change the rules. Of course. Yeah, yeah you, could, right. you could change the rules any way you want. I think right. the argument is that once the genie's out of the bottle, it's very hard mm-hmm. to put it back in. In fact, so a lot of the institutionalists in the Senate. Yes, uh, I know. People right. like, I think John McCain is one of them who, who has. Dianne Feinstein. And, right. Yeah. Are, are saying, look, if we go this route, uh, it's, then, it's likely for good. Then we give up that special. Uh, cooling down right. uh, um, uh, in theory and in practice that that we've seen in the United States Senate. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, and we've seen that, as you mentioned, with, uh, you know, cabinet members and, and lower level administration folks. Um, you know, when, when the Democrats decided to take that same route, uh, when they were in power, Republicans have uh, used that same precedent to push through their nominations with with a lower threshold vote. Okay, so that's occupying the Senate. On the House, uh, this, what seems to be the big news is Mike Pence, uh, vice president, has spent the last two days on the Hill huddling with Paul Ryan, huddling with the Freedom Caucus, huddling with moderates right. to try to resurrect the health care plan, which failed so badly was that they didn't even bring it up for a vote the last time because uh, people were saying they would have lost by 50, 75 votes. And so here's Mike Meadows, the chair of the finance of the Freedom Caucus last evening uh, to reporters on when we could get this done. To suggest that we can't get it done by the end of the week would be premature. What? What is he talking about? He really thinks they can get a bill done 
out, written, voted on by the end of this week? You know, I, I he's t- out of his mind. I talked to to Meadows, uh, in fact, yesterday, and he said at the beginning of the week, <laughs> uh, he was more hopeful when when Mike Pence sat down with his group uh, and presented some options to them. He was more hopeful, and that was on that was on Monday, um, two days ago. Two two days ago, yeah, we're only on Wednesday. Yeah, by yesterday, right. he said, uh, you know, the tone had changed. Uh, you know, it seemed like they were moving further apart. And, uh, you know, obviously, as we get nearer to the end of the week, uh, chances are very, very unlikely that we're going to we're going to see this come up again. Well, first of all, it's a new bill. Right. So it would have to get through three committees. I'm not certain about that. They, they may have some options where they could expedite things. I mean, the, the House can do whatever it wants, basically. Republicans have the majority. The first bill had to go through three committees. One would think the second bill would, too. But you're right. They could, they could have some fast deal. But they'd still have to get 216 votes. They still would need 216. And right now, everything we're hearing from people monitoring the changes or the proposed changes in the bill and monitoring the whip situation, they're saying the whip is moving in the wrong direction. That some of these proposed changes that Mike Pence offered to Mark Meadows and the Freedom yeah, Caucus, right. which would uh, you Let, know yeah, allow. Let's, let's talk about sure. First of all, some of those changes, right, that they're throwing out there. We could do this. Right. We could do this. Would you, members of the Freedom Caucus, come with us if we do these things? What right. are they talking about? Well, they they like some of I, these ideas. Basically, the talks are focusing on two uh, two Obamacare provisions. Uh, It would allow states to essentially opt out of two specific Mm -hmm. key Obamacare regulations. The first is um, essential health benefits, which I I know you're aware of. Uh, That requires uh, insurers to provide certain, a certain set of health services for those who are insured, including maternal care or um, mental health type services, you know, basic services. Yeah. God forbid that any insurance plan would have to contain certain essential benefits. What a radical idea, right? Oh, God. Gee, it would have to cover you if you get sick. Why should health insurance have to do that? Okay, that's one. Right. The other one <laughs> Obviously is... Obviously, uh, we'll not get my vote. The but. other one is community <laughs> rating. And yeah. th- that, would, uh, that would prevent... That basically prevents insurers from, um, you know, charging sick people or people who are older... Um, higher premium mm-hmm. rates. Yeah. So again, th- these are these are key tenants of Obamacare, and key reasons, essential elements, I guess. If you want a plan that pays for it itself, I mean, the idea we've talked this about so many times in insurance. Right. You got to have a pool, and the bigger the pool, and the more healthy people you have in the pool, the better the system works. Right. And, and so, and they eliminate all this. What we're talking about are separating these yeah, types of right. pools. So you right. have a high yeah. risk pool yeah. And, yeah. and a regular risk pool. Right. So it's one way of almost of making sure Obamacare does not work. But so these are the things they throw out for the Freedom Caucus right. members. Then, what are the moderates going to think about this? Well, and and so we're in the exact same predicament <clears throat> as we were two weeks ago when right. the vote collapsed. Right. Because we're talking about the same things essentially. Uh, this is what the Freedom Caucus wanted. Paul Ryan and Mike Pence and Donald Trump need Freedom Caucus votes in order to get to this magic number of 216. But when you start moving the bill to the right, votes start peeling off 
from the center, people like, you know, Charlie Dent, the uh, chairman of the mm-hmm. Tuesday group, and Frank yeah. Lobiondo. Right. In fact, some of these moderates are saying that they, I mean, they have publicly said that they support or prefer Obamacare over this mm-hmm. alternative, mm-hmm. which is, if you think about it, it's it's amazing given that they've been campaigning for the last seven years on repealing Obamacare. Right. So that's why it just seems to me that this whole exercise is pointless and a waste of time. Um, as long as, again, they're just talking inside the Republican caucus, we're right. just talking about the House too. Right. You, you got to the Senate. Barely yet. even hear from Democrats this week. No. <laughs> well, why should they? Were the Republicans, you know, they can engaged, sit in back, a, yeah. engaged in a civil war, basically, right? Right. right. They can sit back and, and <clears throat> pop some popcorn and, and just watch the GOP go at it with each other. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is the Bill Press Show. Well, they're at it again. The White House still trying to change the subject. You know, so far they've offered no proof to back up Donald Trump's claim that President Obama ordered the wiretapping of Trump Tower. So they keep throwing red herrings out there to try to get us off focus. Remember, uh, they've said that we ought to be focused on the leakers instead of the Russian connection. They said, well, let's blame Hillary. What she did was a whole lot worse. Then let's talk about Elizabeth Farkas. And now they're saying let's talk about Susan Rice. Because it turns out that those mysterious documents that House Intelligence Chair Devin Nunez discovered uh, down at the White House show that Susan Rice, as National Security Advisor, actually asked the unmasking of certain names of Trump officials who were picked up in conversations through incidental surveillance with Russian agents. This proves, they said, that Donald Trump was right that President Obama ordered the wiretapping of Trump Tower. No, 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 no. It doesn't prove that at all. We're talking about something entirely different actions. President Trump accuses Obama, again, of wiretapping Trump Tower. That did not happen. What Susan Rice did was totally different. As national security, and it's important to know this, as national security advisor, when she saw that the same people kept popping up on conversations with Russian agents in this country, she wanted to know who they were and what they were talking about. She would not have been doing her job otherwise. And what she did was perfectly legal, perfectly ethical, and it was important, again, to protect the American people. Susan Rice did nothing wrong. Susan Rice was just doing her job. This is The Bill Press Show. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented... They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.